So, my name is Justin. I have a beautiful, amazing wife whose name is Jacqueline. And for my birthday, she bought me the coolest birthday present I've ever gotten. And it's called a one wheel. <laughs> Which for those of you who don't know, it's like a skateboard minus three wheels. It's got just one big wheel in the center and it's all electronic. You, you don't have anything in your hands. It connects to your phone so you know how fast you're going. And uh, it, it kind of automatically balances itself. And the more you lean forward, the faster it goes. If you lean back, it slows down. Well, I loved this thing. And so in the 16 days that I've owned it, I put 200 miles on it, right? I was, it was my commuter to and from work. I was going to meetings on it. Anywhere I could go on the one wheel, I would take it. And what happened is in 16 days, I got really overconfident. And I got really just like, oh no, dude, I know how this thing works. I'm so good at it. I, I don't even fall, I literally said to my wife the day, I, I don't even fall off this thing. So what happened is I had a meeting here at five o'clock on Tuesday. And I'm cruising up this street. It's the last stretch. I can see the church building. And I'm, I'm leaning into it. And so what the board does is at 16 miles an hour, it leans up to let you know, hey man, you're going a little too fast. And maybe you should put the chill pill on. Well, people online said you could just push right through that. You just lean right through that, it's fine. And you can. So you push right through that, but what they didn't tell me and what the customer service representative told me after the fact, when I called him, is at some point the engine can't keep up with you and so it, it just stops. And so my phone clocked me at 25 miles an hour. I'm going uphill right here. And all of a sudden, as I'm riding, the front end just goes And it goes from 25 to zero, and I keep going at 25. Right? So I broke my fibula in three spots. Um, I was wearing a helmet, because I, I hit my head so hard. I hit my head so hard that the woman across the street who saw it happened, she was like, tell me your name. What's your birthday? How old are you? Like she's making sure everything's still working the way it should. And uh, so I have surgery tomorrow. So that's my plans forward are only getting up and up, right? But what happened, but you know what's a bummer is individually that that stinks, you know, like, okay, I broke my, my fibula in three spots. I got to have surgery. That's a bummer. But the impact didn't just stop with me because it impacted my wife. Because now my wife has three kids she's got to take care of and me. It impacted my kids because my boy's entire relationship with me is to wrestle me. And they're like, they don't understand why dad is so lame all of a sudden, you know? Um, it impacted my, my job, my coworkers, because I have a, we're, we're getting ready for our middle school eighth grade grad trip, which was we were leaving the week of my crash. And now I had to send my staff who have never led an eighth grade grad trip before on it. And so they, they learned really quick and they, they totally executed it. But the impact was, it was more than just me. It wasn't just me, it was my wife, it was my kids, it was my job and it just kind of got bigger, you know? If, if there are things, there are things that they demand respect. They demand a, a really a healthy fear of them. And if you don't have that fear, if they're misused, it can not only hurt you, but the impact can be greater. I mean, think about like how many men do you know 
who had a healthy fear of a skill saw, and then it went away, and now they can't count to 10. Okay, so some, you know someone, all right? What about like the healthy fear of vehicles that we can lose? You just get really confident on it, and it's, oh, no, I can send a text. No, I can, I can, I'm fine on it, don't worry. Oh, I can go that fast. And people get hurt, and the impact can be larger than just yourself. It affects larger, how about firearms? How quickly, how many times do you hear on the news of someone has lost their healthy fear of a firearm and it has caused catastrophic issues, not only for themselves, but for their family or their community or even larger. So the more something demands your respect, the more fear that it should have when you don't have that fear in the right place, it can really affect a whole lot of people. And so we're in this spot in the book of Judges where the people did not have the fear of the Lord anymore. They didn't have God in his right spot. They didn't look at him as the supreme king of the universe. Instead, what gets said over and over, the mantra is, there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own sight. And so tonight, what we're gonna look at in this chapter, it's very interesting how Judges ends because we've been kind of conditioned at this point for really awesome people. You've got Deborah and you've got Gideon and his mighty men. You've got Samson. And then out of nowhere, you get this totally dysfunctional family that do not serve Yahweh. They do not fear him in the right way. It's, it, it's crazy because in the other chapters, the enemy's outside, right? It's all external. Well, now it's, you see it's, it's an internal problem now. Things have shifted to where it's God's own people now spiritually are in decline. Now spiritually, are, they're in spiritual decomposition. They're falling apart. And so we're gonna look tonight, starting with a man whose name is Micah. So we'll be in Judges 17, and we're gonna tackle 17 and 18 today. <clears throat> There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by Yahweh. So you're introduced to this guy named Micah. Micah has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom. That's 28 pounds of silver. And for you and me, you're like, well, I don't know the ratio of silver to dollars. Is this a big amount? Is that a small amount? Later in this chapter, you're gonna see that in order to get someone to work for him, he's gonna pay someone, a skilled laborer, he's gonna pay them to stay with him 10 pieces of silver a year. So this is a lot. This is like life savings. This is retirement. Micah steals it all from his mom. You know, there's a lot of times in the kid's wing where I'll be talking to parents and I'll say something like, man, it's crazy. In the kid's wing, I, I, we had this kid who did this thing. Man, what, what would you, what, what do you think we should do? And the parent will say something along the lines of, you should kick them out. Like, man, they wow, I can't believe you'd allow that to happen. I go, man, it's nutty because it's actually your kid. 
And you know what happens? They go, well, not my kid. There must be a good reason. Okay, that's Micah's mom, right? Stole 1,100 pieces of silver. Micah's mom is cursing the person who stole it. And the son gets all freaked out because he hears what his mom's saying. Oh my gosh, I'm being cursed. He's very superstitious. We're gonna see he, he wants to be a really religious guy. And so he comes to his mom and, and he goes, hey, it was me, I stole it. And she goes, oh, blessings on you, honey. I, I'm sure there was a good reason for you to steal everything from me, right? So that's, we're introduced to Micah in this light. We go from Samson to man-child right here. Man's man to man-child now with Micah. And verse three says, and he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. Um, I'm not saying I'm great at math, but 1,100 and 200, there's a discrepancy there, right? Like someone's trying to cook the books and they're doing a very bad job. So Micah, we're introduced to him as he's cheating his mom. Micah's mom, we're introduced to, to her as she's cheating God now. She's doing something wrong totally. The, First thing she does with this, oh, I'm, oh, I'll give it back to God by breaking one of his commandments. I'll make an idol. Awesome. But she doesn't even give him the whole amount that she says she's going to give him. She only gives him 200 pieces of silver instead of the full 1,100 pieces of silver. I think it's kind of like a Ananias and Sapphira, you know? Like she wants her son to think how spiritual and how holy she is. Oh, you've done something wrong. Well, blessings on you by the Lord. And I'm just going to return it all to God. In reality, she only gives a fraction of it back to him. She's trying to be super spiritual even while she's breaking commandments. And here's what's what's interesting, is the idol that she makes, it's not an Ashtaroth, it's not a Baal, it's not Chemosh, it's not Moloch, it's not any of the other idols of the neighboring Canaanite communities. Who's the idol of? It's 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 supposed to be of Yahweh. She's making an idol to God, to him. Why is that a problem? Why does God say, hey, you shouldn't do that? My people do not do that. Like when the Israelites made the golden calf to worship Yahweh, why was that an issue? Because when you make an image of God, you're making God small and manageable and controllable, and you're saying, this is what God is like. I'm gonna show you how to worship God. I'm gonna show my people how you approach my God and what he likes and what he doesn't like. And God says, you couldn't even begin to understand me. You couldn't even begin to understand how great and mighty I am. A calf doesn't cover it, and whatever thing you've carved out of wood and covered with silver doesn't cover it either. Don't do that. Really, what they're doing here is they're making God God manageable. They're limiting God by the likeness of whatever their imagination can bring to light. They're saying, this is what God is like. Whatever they can imagine, no matter how grand it is, that's what God's like. And God goes, not even close, man. Nope. It makes God small. In verse five, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod, which is a priestly garment. 
It's what the priests would wear as they served the Lord. And household gods, which for the Canaanites and for the neighboring people, each house would have their own gods, their own idols. And there's just culturally, this is, this is what the Canaanites did. God doesn't like that. God explicitly said, don't do that. But Micah, he's a, he's, a, he's a tolerant man, he's cultural, he wants to make sure that everyone feels welcome at his home, and he wants everyone to, to experience his God, so he'll meet them where they're at, and so he's got those. And he ordained one of his sons, who became a priest. And in verse six, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is how we're introduced to Micah. We get this little section and we say there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you're quick with your pages, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12, God actually lays out word for word everything that's wrong with us. It's very interesting to me how a phrase that is used in the Bible relates so much to what's happening right here. Get this. It says, these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. This is Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse two. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire, their little idols. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. In verse four, you shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way with those little idols. If the little household gods they have, you cut them down, you get rid of them, you burn them, they're gone and you will never if you're my people, worship me in that way. And then verse five says, but you shall seek the place that Yahweh your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before Yahweh your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which Yahweh your God has blessed you. And then verse eight is very interesting to me. And maybe you'll find it interesting too, given what's happening in Judges and the mantra that has been, everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. Verse eight of Deuteronomy 12 says, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Isn't that crazy? Like in this little chapter of Deuteronomy, you're getting exactly what Micah is doing, and then it follows it up with this, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. You're behaving like you were before God redeemed you, before God saved you, before you came into the land to possess it. Are you kidding me? That's where Micah is right now. And the problem is, is there's no king. God is not the center of their life, of their worldview, of, what they, of how they should do things. They don't check in with God. There's no talking to God in this. Everyone's just doing their own thing. There's no higher power, there's no higher authority. It's, this is what I feel like doing. This is what I want to do. This is what's right to me. Does that sound like today? Too much, right? 
man, I've just got to do what I'm called to do. I'm just going to worship God in the way that God tells me to worship him. God's very clear. And if you read his word, sometimes the exact things you're doing in order will show up in the scripture going, you don't do that if you're my people. Verse seven. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I might might find a place. So you have a Levite. The Levites were not given a specific land to occupy. Judah was, Dan was, all the other tribes were given a space, but the Levites were told to occupy 40 cities within those tribes where God would send them. And there, the Levites' job was to serve the the priest and to serve the tribe in the sacrifice and in the worship and in the praise of God. The only Levite who could be a priest would be those whose lineage came from Aaron. But all the other Levites, their job was to help the tribes worship Yahweh. But here, you have a Levite coming from Benjamin, and that's not one of the cities that God told Levite to go to. And right now, he's sojourning. He's just wandering. He's going to make his own way in the world. You know, he's not liking the way that things were, so he just, I'm going to go find out what God has for me. And as he's wandering, as he's going along, he finds this guy named Micah. And so Micah now, who's built his own little church at home, he's got his household gods, he's, he's made his son a priest, he's, his mom has invested heavily into his really cool, you know, sanctuary. Now he's looking at a priest who's got no place a priest who isn't dedicated to a temple, someone who's got all this time on their hands. It just so happens to be that we, we cross paths. So here's what he does. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes for your living. That's the 10 pieces of silver. That's the reference for how much 1,100 was. It's a lot And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. Is that what the Levite should have done? When he came and saw the temple, just be content with it? Oh, you got all these cool little gods, right on. Yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, I like that. I get it. No way. He should have went, are you kidding me? No, we don't do that. Don't you know? Don't you know that that's not what God is going to have his people do? Don't you know that you're not supposed to worship God with those things? There's one place in Ephraim where God's people were supposed to come and worship, and it was a place called Shiloh. They weren't supposed to have little private places to worship. They weren't supposed to to separate themselves away from other worshipers. They were supposed to come all together and praise all together. And God really still pushes that for his people today. You see in Hebrews chapter 10, where God says, don't forsake the assembling of the people together. Don't forsake coming together where you can encourage one another to love and good works. We're supposed as, as believers to come together, not make our praise, not make our, our worship private, 
but come and talk together and reason together and wrestle through things and, and share experiences. Because then when you're in with a group of believers and one of them goes, oh yeah, I've got this really cool household idol, chances are someone will go, hey, I don't think that's what you're supposed to do. I don't think that's what's right. But instead, you've got this Levite where he just goes, oh yeah, man, no, I'm, I'm content to dwell with you. That sounds great. Yeah, let's, let's do it that way. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became a priest and was in the house of Micah, verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know that Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So here's how, I think the first time you see really why God does not want us to make idols of him. Because it makes God small, it makes him manageable, it makes him tiny, and you start to say, God thinks like me, the way that I am, the way that I can be convinced, the way I can be negotiated with, I can negotiate that same way with God. And so here's the first way, is, is he says, God is just like me in my math. He says, God adds things together the same way that I add things together. I've got my temple, I've got all my religious items together, and now I've got an actual Levite. Now, Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. He's saying, I've got A and I've got B now, so God has to do C. He's saying, I've done all the right things, now I'll be prosperous, God has to do it, I've got him. I've got God right where I want him. How silly is that? Isn't that something though that maybe even subconsciously the believer can be tempted into doing as well? We say, okay God, I'm gonna read this entire book. I'm gonna memorize all of chapter six of Romans. God, I'm going to come every single Sunday and every single Wednesday so that you will prosper me, so that you'll give me this, so that you will have to do that. That doesn't work with God. You're trying to manage, control God, and God doesn't work that way. Don't try to negotiate with God. You have nothing that he wants and he's gonna ask from you more than you could ever give. God's not someone who's looking at you going, man, if I could just get him to do this, then I would be complete. Nuh-uh, that's not how the relationship here works. No, but it's so silly how if you don't have this fear of God, if you don't have God in his right spot, the things that you say and the things that you think, they just become crazy if you step back and you think about them. So like there's this person I'm connected to from when I went to college. And what he says about himself is he's spiritual but not religious. It's S-B-N-R is what they call himself, spiritual but not religious. And what he said is he has a belief in God in my own way as opposed to conforming to a specific re religion. I believe in God in my own way. Okay, so God is just whatever you want God to be. God likes whatever you like. God dislikes whatever you like. You're never challenged. You're never offended by your God. God never tries to make you be to a higher standard. Instead, you can make your God be at whatever standard you want. Isn't that psychotic? Just intellectually, isn't that so offensive? That your God would be conformed to whatever image you want him to be? That's these idols that they make. It's nonsense. You've just made God small. And here's the thing about Jesus is if he is your king, if he is your God, 
then it's not about what you want, is it? It's about what he wants. That our God is bigger, our God is more powerful, our God is asking more of us than we even want to do, and so you should be challenged as a believer. Here's what's so amazing about the Bible, is something in it offends every single person in every single culture, but it's not always the same thing. If this book was something like these guys who are spiritual but not religious, to their group, to that person, everything in their Bible that God is like wouldn't be offensive to them because they've conformed God to how he is. It would all make sense to them. But the Bible, in some way, shape, or form, is offensive to every person in a different way in every culture. So for instance, in the Middle East, they love what God has to say about family. They hate what God has to say about forgiveness. In America, we love what God has to say about forgiveness. We hate what God has to say about family. It's a book that is offensive to different groups of people in different ways because it's not a human book. It's a heavenly book. And it calls the people who read it to see things from God's perspective and say, actually, I'm king. I'm the one who says what is right and it needs to be done. And I'm the one who says that is evil and it needs to stop. And if God's your king, if, if you have a healthy fear of God where you say, oh yeah, I need to listen to him, then it's our job to conform to his will. And we say, okay, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna try to control God and bend his will and say, well, I'll just make it, nah, he's your king. And so the Levite and Micah, they've got bad math. They think that God does math the way they do math. If I do these things correctly, if I have all these things in order, then I've got God right where I want him and he's gonna do what I want. And verse 18 opens with this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Now stop. There's a pattern. The pattern is, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did was right in their own sight. Right? So A and B. No king, everyone did was right in their own sight. No king, everyone did was right in their own sight. Right here, there's no king, and Dan was seeking for an inheritance because they didn't have one. So what's that saying to you? Dan was doing what was right in their own sight. So Dan had been given a spot. And where they're at, they've got Philistines on the left. They've got Amorites on the right. To the south of them, they got the massive tribe of Judah, and what they're doing is they're looking around going, man, the Philistines are really tough, and I don't think we could take them, and the Amorites, I don't know if, I don't know. I don't, that's really hard. That's super hard. I don't think we should take the land that God has told us to take. Maybe there's somewhere else for us. So instead of taking the land that God wants them to take, they're doing whatever's right in their own sight, and they go, we're gonna seek for an inheritance on our own. We're gonna make a way for ourselves. We're gonna go find opportunity where it may be. And so verse two, so the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and to Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And when they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah and lodged there, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? 
what's your business here? They just heard him talking and they're like, that voice isn't from around here. He's got a different accent. You ever hear someone, you're like, oh, they're not from around here. So I was in Nashville with my wife and we're getting breakfast at one of the diners. And I don't know anything about the South and their culture. And so I go, oh, I would love a biscuit with my, um, with my bacon. She goes, oh, cool. And do you want heavy gravy or just normal gravy? And I go, well, I don't want any gravy. And she looks at me and she goes, you ain't from around here. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, apparently that's not how it's done, right? So they hear this Levite, you sound different. Hey, who are you? Where are you from? And he said to them, verse four, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me and I have become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of Yahweh. Bless you. Isn't it interesting how everything is coming from this one guy's house? Isn't that? It's all centered around this dude named Micah. Well, so here's the, here's the next thing that happens. They come to the Levite, and they, this tribe of Dan has already decided they're going to do whatever they want to do. They're not going to go and possess the land that God has told them to possess. They're going to go find their own spot. And while they're going, they hear a man with a different accent. And they go, hey, where are you from? And he explains to him, oh, I'm a priest here. I'm a priest in this, this own sanctuary that you may not have heard of because it's not supposed to happen. And they go, well, hey, that's great. Would you mind asking God for his assistance, for his opinion? Would you mind calling him and seeing if, if he'll give us victory in this? And the priest goes, oh, yeah, man. No, yeah, go, go in peace. The journey on which he goes under the eye of the Lord. He just sells this this prosperity gospel. Oh no, man, it's all good. It's all love. You're all set. Don't worry. You're fine. Here's the second way that they've, I believe they've made God controllable is that they misunderstand the scale. So they misunderstand God by math and now they misunderstand the scale of God. This is something that just blew my mind. So the earth to the sun is 93 million miles away, right? 93 million. Take that distance and make it the width of a piece of paper, okay? Now, if you were to stack paper on top of each other for 130 miles, that distance would be one edge of our galaxy to the other edge of our galaxy, okay? So that's a little bit of perspective, how big our galaxy is. If you shrink that again to a grain of sand, our galaxy is in relation to all the other known galaxies, like just one grain of sand amongst all the other grains of sand, amongst all of the sand on all of the seashores, right? Imagine that for a moment. The Bible says our God made all of that with a word, and that our God holds the whole world like a contact lens on his little pinky. Is that God interested in being anyone's personal assistant? Is that a being that you say, hey, don't call me, we'll call you? No way. They've got the scale totally wrong. Hey, I'm going to do whatever I want, but now that I've met a priest, oh, hey, will you check in and just get some advice from him? 
Will you just check in and see if, uh, good plan, bad plan. You've messed up a long time ago. You took a wrong turn way back when you left Dan to go and seek an inheritance that God hasn't given you. You've got the scale all wrong. The whole thing is just so laughable. You've completely missed who God is, what God has asked you to do, what God will do for you. Everyone's just doing whatever they think is right, whatever's right in their heart, and they're just going for it. Verse seven, then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, what do you report? They said, arise and let us go up against them for we have seen the land and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So we know God has called them to remove the Philistines, to remove the Amorites, and that's gonna be your land. But instead they wander up and they find these, this group of people that the Bible lets us know twice, this is an unsuspecting group. They're unarmed. They don't mess with other people. They're this innocent group of people. They're not a group that God said, yeah, go get rid of them, push them out. The Danites come up and they go, oh, that's easy. The Philistines and the Amorites are hard, but this is easy. Let's do the easy thing. Let's go crush this unsuspecting group and then we'll have all their land. Look at how good their land looks. Our land's been trampled by the Philistines. Let's, let's go take care of them. Verse 11 says, so 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. Verse 18, and when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image. The priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest of the house of one man, or, is it, or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod, and the household gods, 
and the carved image and went along with the people. So these Danites come back, they repay good for the, hey, Micah said we could stay at his house and, and the welfare and the, and the food that he shared with them. And, and instead of repaying good for good, they come back and they go, hey, he's got good stuff. Let's go take that too. We're gonna go crush those people. Let's take, let's take the priest with us because God hasn't designated us a spot up there to worship. So we'll just take the, the worshiper for hire. We'll grab this priest and bring him up with us. And when they come and they tell the Levite, hey, instead of worshiping this one guy, or worshiping with this one guy, you could be a priest of a tribe. And his heart was glad. He goes, oh, that sounds great. Here's the third way I think, that they've made God small, they've made God manageable, they've made God like us, is in their math, is in their scale. The only way I could think of it is they've made God like their mom. My mom just wants me to be happy. And if your moms just want you to be happy, they just want the, oh, I just want my kids to be happy. There's a lot of people today who believe, well, if I'm not happy, God is moving me on. And they do that in their jobs, and they do that in their marriages, and they do that with their responsibilities, and they do that with any issue in their life. Well, this isn't making me happy, so I'm done. This is making me miserable, so I'm out. Can you imagine if that was how it really was? So like, think about, I think about Daniel in the lion's den. So Daniel is, he's praying to God, and the king says, no one should be praying to anyone except for me. I can meet all your needs. I'm the one in charge around here. And Daniel keeps praying because that's what he's done. That's his habit. That's who he is. That's his relationship with the Lord. And the king finds out about it. And he goes, okay, I'm going to do something about this. And God is controlling the movements and the steps and what's going to happen. And in heaven, God goes, you know what? Daniel loves kittens. Wait till I could show him these big old kittens. He's going to be so stoked. He's gonna be so excited. And then they throw Daniel in and Daniel's like, oh, they're cats, my heart is glad. That's not what happens at all. When Daniel's being led to the lion's den, he's certain this is it, I'm out. I'm gonna be devoured, I'm gonna be killed. The king who loves Daniel is like, this is horrible, what's gonna happen? God's not, it's the right way to say that. Your happiness is not number one necessarily, it's important. But you think about Jesus. Jesus was not happy. His heart was not glad at the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating blood, when he's anxious, when he's depressed to the point of death. But it was God's will to continue through. Amen? It was God's will to continue to go to the cross, to drink of the cup that you and I could not drink so that we could be forgiven. I think God does want us to be happy. Don't get me wrong. I think that God's people are supposed to be worshiping excited people, that we've got the king of the universe, the one that scale is so above anything that we could ever imagine. We should look at that scale and go, who am I that you would consider me? Who am I that you would think of me? Who am I that you give your life for me? And it should cause us to be rejoicing, happy people. And when suffering and when hard times come, we go, I'm gonna trust in that God. But God doesn't promise us happiness. In fact, God, the Bible promises us war, that life is really hard, that having a successful marriage is going to be difficult, that being a Jesus follower in your workplace is going to be a trial. But they, he believes, well, if it makes me happy, then it makes my heart glad this is what God wants me to do. And he leaves the Danites. Verse 21, so they turned and departed. 
putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan and turned, who turned around and said to Micah, what is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? Isn't that such a silly line? You took the gods that I made. Isn't that crazy? Man, but get this. People do this all the time too. They've made God powerless. See, he needs to protect his own gods. He needs to make sure they're secure. He needs to make sure that they don't get stolen. He believes that his gods can give him wisdom and his gods can give him prosperity, but he doesn't believe that his God is powerful. There's another side of that too, where people can believe that God is powerful, but that God's not wise. You know, like, God, I, do, there's, I cannot believe in a God who would allow these things to happen. Oh, because you can't think of a reason, therefore there can't be a reason. God can't have a reason. You think God's powerful, but he's not wise. It's crazy. We can do these same things in our head where we make God small. In fact, Psalm, chapter, Psalm 50 has a brilliant way where God puts it. This is what he says. Verse nine of Psalm 50, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. You hear what God's saying? I don't need you to protect me. I need you to feed me. I'm not so small that you have to come and, and wrestle me away from someone else. You don't get it at all. If I was hungry, you're not the person I'm coming to. And so Psalm 50 verse 21 says this, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. You thought I was just like you. You're wrong in doing that. I'm not just like you. I'm so far other, so far above you. I don't need you to defend me. But this guy's made God so small, so manageable, that when his gods get taken away, he says, what have I left? This can also happen when you've taken God, the fear of the Lord is having God at the center, and you've removed him from it, and you have something else at your center. Something else, and there's something that I think we could all have, that if it were removed, we would say, what have I left? It could be status, it could be your career, it could be a, a child, it could be a relationship. It could be a possession where if that thing was removed, I've lost everything. Why am I living? What's the point? What have I left? What's, why, why even keep going on? He's got everything mixed up because he's lost the fear of the Lord. God is no longer king. God is no longer the center of the universe. Instead, it's me and my perception, the way I perceive the world, the way that I see God. It's funny, we can still make these same mistakes. We can still have these same misorders in our life. Verse 25. And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, 
And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him. And they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon. And they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses. And his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So now we've been given the identity of the priest. He's actually Moses's great, great grandkid. Dude, if anyone was supposed to not fail, it'd be Moses's kids. But he's the one. And this, this false religion that has started in one man's home, it spread to his community, then it spread to a tribe, and it's going to end up spurring on what's going to be the downfall of a nation. It's insanity. It's what, it's what happens here, that he's misplaced God. They've made this religion that looks cool and fun, and it's full of tolerance, and they just talk about nice things. Oh, yeah, man, the Lord's with you. And that spreads, and it permeates and poisons the nation. And it's gonna be a issue for Dan until the captivity. For you and me, it's so important that we as God's people not lose the fear of the Lord, not forget that Jesus is king and I am not. And the image that God's word gives us of God is so other than anything we could ever describe ever, ever mold into shape, ever even make into an idol. Here's what, here's what the Bible says about God, that he's this being of completely unapproachable light and that his throne, Revelation said, is just booming out thunder and lightning and it's cracking and it's huge and the angels that can get closest to him, the high angels, they cover their bodies head to toe with their wings and they just scream out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy. They just do that all day and all night. They're so overcome with the greatness, the holiness, the bigness of how God is. Man, that, that is God. Not something small, not something manageable, not something controllable, not something that could be negotiated with. We need to get back, I believe, to having a fear of God. I'm more afraid of God than I am of what my neighbors think of me. I'm more afraid of God than I am of what my kids think of me or what my friends think of me. When someone in the Bible got an opportunity to glimpse God like Job or Moses, it fundamentally changed them. It stopped them in their tracks. You think about Job who was complaining and, and absolutely things are going wrong, but he gets a glimpse of who God is and he just has to fall silent. And he has to just stop and be humbled and embarrassed of everything that he said that was so arrogant. 
We need to remember the scale, that the enormous gap there is between God and us, that it's not about me, it's not about what I want, it's about whatever Jesus wants. That if God sent his son to die for me so that I could be forgiven of my sins and that's what God wants, then God, I want whatever you want. God, if, if that's what you want to do so that we can be brought back together, I want whatever you want, I'll do whatever you want me to do. That, and you know that you're there. If when you pray, you pray like this, you say, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. Do you know why God's will is, is carried out in heaven the way he wants it to? Because they see him. There's no confusion. There's no managing. There's no controlling that being. They see him and they go, that's God and I'm not. We need to be reminded of that. God is not like you and me. God is so much bigger, so much other. Can you trust in that God in your pain and in your difficulty and in your hardship? Yes, you can. If what God wants is to reconcile us to him, if God desired that so much, he would give his son, I want what that, I want what that God wants. And there are things in here that challenge me and that mold me and that hurt me and that make me go, I don't, man, God, I just don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can forgive them. I don't know if I can let go of that grudge. I don't know if I can do that. But I'm in for what Jesus wants and not what I want because he's king and I'm not. He's God and I'm not. He's the one who says what is good and it happens and what is evil and it needs to stop. So Jesus, help us to be people who fear you, who have a healthy fear of you. We're not afraid of you, but we know your place in the world. Just like with Micah, where the disrespect of you with not knowing who you are spread to his household and to his community and to his tribe and then to his nation, I pray that for us, our fearing and honoring of who God, who Jesus is, would spread to our household and influence our community and change our town and mold our state and shift our nation more towards like your kingdom. Because we as your people, we want to see your will done here on earth like it is in heaven. Help us to see you the way you are. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Don't get your kids a one will. I'm kidding, do it, but make them wear a helmet.